0: Let me pray that uh, God will help us to reflect on that passage which Joe read for us just a few moments ago. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, we do uh, earnestly pray that you will give us clear minds and open hearts, keep us fresh and awake and open to your message to us this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think I mentioned here at this service a few years back that around the time I got married, a particular book was recommended to me called... The Five Love Languages. Here I am holding it up and uh, if you know me well you might sort of think that this is probably a book with a cover which is, I don't think a cover has ever been put together which has made me less likely to read the book. It's purple and pink, it's got a big heart, it's got flowery fonts etc yet it was recommended to me so I did read it and it was a good little book and it had some great wisdom in it the basic premise of the book is that different people express and experience love in different ways and so it mentions there are five main forms of ways of expressing love you know words of affirmation physical affection quality time acts of service the giving of gifts and the book says that if you want your, you know, spouse, parent, child or whatever to feel loved, you've got to express love to them in the way that they appreciate. So, if they appreciate acts of service, do things. If they appreciate gifts, give them gifts. It may not be your love language but if you want them to appreciate it, do speak their language. It was a good little book and as I said, I thought it expressed some good wisdom Now, perhaps a book which also could be written, and more usefully written even, would be a book entitled The Two Love Languages, or The Two Greatest Love Languages. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I'd like to suggest that The Two Greatest Love Languages are God's Word, the way He speaks to us, and Prayer, the way we can speak to God, uh, and speak to God about others. And today, we're going to think about that second uh, version, Love Language, that is Prayer. Do you want to express your love, your concern and your care for another person you care about in a really meaningful and productive way? If so, pray for them. If you're a Christian and you love someone, praying for others is one of the things you will want to do. Now, if the other person you want to pray for is a Christian, what things might we pray for a Christian who we care about? Now, as I've said in um, sermons in this series in the past, as Christians, we know from the Scriptures that we can pray to God anywhere, about anything, at any time. But it's particularly good also to pray using some of the prayers of Scripture because then we use some of the prayers in the Bible, we know we're praying for things that God is super interested in and that we know that us and God... Are praying and we're on the same page. Now this is the last week in our series, we're looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 22 and 23 in particular and the prayer found there and in this particular passage Paul prays for the Thessalonians, Christians he really cares about in a way which is really helpful for us to reflect on. It's the sort of prayer we could pray for other Christians we care about but it's also a good prayer which we could pray for ourselves as well. Uh, We've called the topic this morning Thoroughly Holy and uh, there are two main sections of of the talk uh, which are on the handout you would have received when you came in and are also on the screen. Firstly, I want to think about Paul's concern for the Thessalonians and then in much more detail, Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians. Firstly, his concern and then his prayer. So, let's think about Paul's concern for the Christians at Thessalonica. First, a bit of background. You may know that Paul, on one of his missionary journeys, was travelling with Timothy and Silas, and he arrived in the city of Thessalonica. And he uh, he preached there over a number of uh, weeks, and we can read about that in the book of Acts, chapter 17. And during the course of his preaching on Sabbaths, a number of people became Christians. They were converted. But his preaching, surprise, surprise, aroused the opposition, of some of the Jewish people in that town and they caused a riot and stirred up opposition forcing Paul to have to leave. So Paul then went down to a place called Berea, started preaching there. But do you know what happened then? The, sorry, the Jews from up in Thessalonica travelled all the way to the Berea to try and oppose Paul there too. What message did we get from that? That there were some Jewish people in Thessalonica who didn't just oppose Paul's message, they really opposed Paul's message, didn't they? They were prepared to travel to oppose it. And what about the church up there? Well, it was a new church, possibly only a few weeks or months old. Now, um, if you were Paul, how do you think you would feel about that church in Thessalonica? A new church, a small church probably, but surrounded by a level of pretty committed opposition. Well, you can imagine that Paul would be very concerned Uh, for the Christians there. Now, if we read for the book of 1 Thessalonians, if you get the chance to do that, you'll see that Paul is very concerned for the Christians there. In fact, he says in chapter 2, verse 17, he refers to his intense longing for them. It's clearly a very sort of emotionally laden relationship. And it's probably not surprising that Paul feels this really strong affection and, and concern and pastoral care because the church up there and he himself are in a somewhat dangerous situation, and also he's naturally pastorally concerned. Now, I was trying to reflect on how we today might better appreciate the level of concern, and I I come up with the following two ideas. Firstly, my dad uh, fought in the Second World War, in the 2nd Fifth Field Regiment, and during the course of the war fighting, you can imagine that he and his mates would have been through some pretty dangerous situations together. Now, when I was a young man in my 20s, uh, and my dad had retired, I'd often see him putting on his suit, and i say, Dad, where are you off to? Oh, one of the guys from the second and fifth passed away It's his funeral. Fifty years later, he was still going to the funerals for the guys he fought with. Why did he do that? I guess he cared about them. They had been in danger together, they'd been for a lot together, they'd suffered together. Fifty years later, he was still going to go and honour them in that way. And when you've been in danger together, you can have this sort of bond. Perhaps Paul felt that for the Thessalonians. And on the pastoral side of things, I wonder whether you ever ran a Bible study group or a youth group or young adults group a number of years ago. Perhaps a number of people in that group became Christians or grew as a Christian under your, you know, humble leadership. And now, you know, 5, 10, 20 years ago, later, you still really care about those people. You think about them, you pray about them, there's that sort of bond. Well, I think if you put both those ideas together, you might get an idea of, I guess, I think the level of emotional commitment that Paul feels and has towards the Christians there in Thessalonica. So what does Paul do with his concern? Well, at least three things, it seems. We can read earlier in 1 Thessalonians that he sent, he couldn't get back to Thessalonica himself, so he sent Timothy. He sent someone to help them, one of his trusted, you know, co-workers. Secondly, Paul writes, writes to them. He writes the book of 1 Thessalonians. Thirdly, Paul prays for them. In fact, right in the second verse of the letter, Paul says he prays for them, uh, he continually mentions them in his prayers. In 1 Thessalonians 3, he mentions a prayer that he prays for the Thessalonian Christians, that their love would increase and overflow, and that would be blameless and holy. And then here in chapter 5, he prays for them again. What does Paul do? He sends Timothy, he writes to them, he prays for them. I wonder whether you've ever heard the phrase, oh, All we can do now is pray. You've heard that, I imagine. It's not a phrase I usually quite particularly like because it suggests that when all other efforts at doing something or achieving something have failed and there's nothing else you can do, well, we may as well pray now. It sort of suggests that prayer can be something of a last resort. But can I say that for Paul, prayer was not a last resort. It was a first resort. When he wanted to show his concern for the Thessalonians, he sent Timothy, he wrote, and he prayed. It was part of a comprehensive three-pronged strategy. So, when we see a Christian family member, friend, neighbour, whatever, in need, and we want to help them, what might we do for them? Well, we might visit them, ring them up remind them of a few spiritual truths, send around a casserole, help them with some gardening, but do we pray for them? Prayer is one of the key things we want to do to help support and encourage and spur on other Christians uh, who we care about. So my question is, do you do that? Now, my question isn't, And, you know, do you theoretically realise that praying for others could be a helpful thing to do in a situation like this? Because looking around, I'm pretty sure that pretty well almost everyone here would know that. I know we all know it in theory, but do we, when we look at our lives, actually pray for Christians we care about, particularly when they're in need? If you are brilliant, if you could do better, join the club, let's pray for people and support them in that way. Okay, given Paul prays as part of his comprehensive strategy to help other believers, what is it that he prays in this particular instance for the Christians in Thessalonica? Verses 23 and 24, let's look at the actual prayer. I'll remind you of what it says. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Now, that was part of the reading which Joe gave to us. When you heard those verses read, what was your response? One, did you actually even remember them being read? Two, when you heard them being read, did you sort of think, oh, yeah, whatever? Were you perhaps a little underwhelmed? If you paid attention, did you sort of think, oh, Paul's just praying that they'd be better Christians, isn't he? You know, big deal. Now, don't articulate any of these things to me, but were you perhaps a little underwhelmed by that prayer? Now, can I say that if you were, it's possibly because um, you and I may not have appreciated that, in fact, this prayer is, in fact, something of a summary. What this prayer does is that it summarises and encapsulates an awful lot of stuff which has been discussed in the preceding five chapters of the book. It's bringing it all together together In this prayer in this summary form let me perhaps give an example which some of you may really relate to and it's been a number of years since i've mentioned the princess bride in the sermon here but the princess bride is a magnificent movie which you should see if you haven't but even if you have or haven't i'll tell you how it finishes at the end of the movie there is a scene where a grandfather has been reading a book to his grandson now, at the start of the movie, the grandfather turns up. He says, I'm going to read you a book to his grandson. The grandson is underwhelmed by a book, like who wants to listen to a book being read? But as the movie continues, as the book is read, the grandson gets very into the story. And at the end of the movie, um, the grandson says to the grandfather, "Granddad, do you reckon you could come again tomorrow and read this book to me again? And the granddad says, as you wish. Now, if you just listened to the first last two minutes of the movie and you heard the grandfather reply, as you wish, you'd think, oh, whatever. Seems like a funny thing to say, not particularly exciting. But if you've watched the movie which has preceded that, that you would, you would know that the phrase, as you wish, is absolutely laden with meaning. It summarises a lot of what's in the movie. And what it summarises is when someone says, as you wish, it's a way of expressing a love is stronger than death. Death cannot overcome true love as you wish. It's, it's, it's this idea. So when the grandfather says at the end, as you wish, he is expressing, I guess, from his deepest heart, how much he really loves his grandson. Of course, I'll come and read it to you again. With that background, it's really meaningful. Without the background, it's just a slightly quirky phrase. Now, I wouldn't say it's exactly like that, but With this prayer, if we don't know the background, we can be perhaps a bit more underwhelmed about that prayer. But when we're aware of the background, uh, the prayer is incredibly meaningful. Now, if you've got the handout, which you received on the way, and you'll see that the prayer picks up three main ideas which have been features in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Firstly, uh, the prayer prays for holy living, and uh, holy living has been a key theme in the book. It features heavily in chapters 4 and 5, and in fact, Paul has already prayed for their holy living back in chapter 3. So there's a prayer for holy living. Secondly, the prayer picks up and references the coming or return of Christ. That has been previously mentioned in a prayer in chapter 3, and the return of Christ has been discussed in some depth in chapters 4 and 5. So it's picking up on those ideas. And finally, the prayer expresses confidence that God will do the very thing asked in this prayer. And that picks up on teachings and assumptions right throughout the book as well. So when we've read the whole book, we actually appreciate this final prayer more and more. So let me try and help us with a few aspects of that. Let's look at the prayer in verse 23. Let me remind you. It says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless. Now, you could say this is a petition for, this is the title of our sermon, thoroughly holy living, really holy living, that they will be sanctified through and through. Now, I don't know how you relate to the word holy. I, I, I tend to think more in terms of Godly living or being more like Jesus or living more the life that I was created to live or living more the way that would please God, all means the same sort of thing. It's praying that we will be like that more and more. Now, some of the things this holy living looks like a set out elder in the book particularly in chapter 4 verses 1 to 12 and 5 12 to 22 which is part of the reading which was uh, given to us earlier and some of the things that holy living entails in the book is firstly speaks about loving one another and wouldn't that be helpful don't we want more of that it speaks about being sexually pure and when we're thinking properly we want that as well don't we talks about respecting Christian leaders, our Christian leaders, earlier in chapter 5. Sometimes easy, sometimes not as easy, uh, but it's something we clearly recognise as being valuable. It talks about praying continually, something which we know is important. It talks about listening to God and testing what we hear, listening to God rather than the world, clearly a good thing to do. These are just some of the things which are aspects of holy living which have been discussed already in the letter. And these are the sorts of things that when you get to this prayer at the end, you'll be bringing these sorts of things to mind, particularly those which have been really resonating with you. So here's a question. When we pray for the Christians we care about, do we pray for their increasing holiness or godliness, as the case may be? Or when we pray for Christians to we care about, do we mainly pray for their successes? Perhaps that they'd be successful in their study or in their exam or in their work or successful in getting a promotion or successful in their music exam or their sport or successful in their relationships or successful in their marriage or successfully having a child or successfully whatever. Now, there is no reason why we shouldn't pray for these sorts of things. And we'd always pray that we pray for these things if it's your will, God, we do that. But is that all we pray for them? Or do we also pray that they will become increasingly godly. Because all those things I just mentioned, a non-Christian, if they thought it was worth praying, would pray for their kids or brothers or parents as well. Everyone in the world wants that for their loved ones. But what sorts of things do Christians pray for their loved ones that is distinctive? One of the distinctive things here is that they will become increasingly holy. Now, can I say that it's quite a dangerous prayer to pray that other people will become increasingly holy because becoming increasingly holy often involves a path which can involve some level of suffering or some level of opposition or difficulty. Think about it. If we're living holy lives, that can provoke a bit of kickback, opposition, when i think about it most of the christians i know who are a bit older than me who are admirable christians uh, their character has been shaped and formed by some of the difficulties they've gone through those difficulties have i guess been used by god to sanctify them to make them holier and godlier so when we're praying for those we care about that they will become increasingly holy we're probably praying that god might choose to refine them by putting them through difficulties are you prepared to pray that prayer now a non-christian wouldn't (laughs) But as Christians, will we pray for holiness? And when we're praying that those we care about, you know, brother, sister, parent, child, mate, would become uh, thoroughly holy, do we really want them to become thoroughly holy or just somewhat holy? When we pray that they would be sanctified through and through, do we really mean that we just would prefer it if they were sanctified a bit or to some extent? Do we balk at the idea of them being sanctified through and through. Perhaps you're a parent. You have a child. You want your child to be a keen Christian. But when the child turns around and says, oh, I'm thinking of going to Bible college. Well, I don't want you to be that Christian. Now, I'm not saying that going to Bible college is the be-all and end-all. I'm just using it as an example. But we want our kids to be keen Christians, but do we want them to be super keen Christians? I wonder whether Mary sort of thought... Wouldn't it be nice if Jesus was perhaps more a respected synagogue leader than the servant-hearted Son of God? She might have thought that, but just as well he didn't do that, you know. Um, and do we want our, our friends, our Christian friends and loved ones, to love us, but we don't want them to super love us because they might start asking us a few awkward questions about our, our drinking habits or our, our temper or our involvement at church or, or some area of you know weakness in our lives or something like that, you know? Just if Jesus was here. Do you think that um, he might find anything about our lives which could be improved upon? Uh, I suspect it could. So, you know, it can be a little potentially threatening that we pray that those we care about would be sanctified through and through because it might actually impact back on us in some way or form as well. But if we are praying that others and we ourselves are becoming increasingly holy, sanctified through and through, we know from Scripture it's better for others It's better for us, it's better for the world, and it glorifies God. It's what we want. I'm just saying that it could be a little tricky for us and others at times. It could involve suffering, difficulties, awkwardness. But it's what we want to pray if we're Christians. So, the prayer then continues on. We've been praying that people would become thoroughly holy, sanctified through and through, increasingly blameless... And then you notice at the end of verse 23, it says, at the coming of our Lord Jesus. So it's looking forward to the return of Christ. The return of Christ is presented as an incentive for Christian living, particularly when Christian living can sometimes be a bit of a challenge. Looking at the finish line can be a great encouragement to keep going with trying to live out and pray for holiness. I wonder whether you know the name John Stephen Acquirey. I'm just looking around. Just wave at me if you know who John Stephen Aquari is. No one. Great. He was a Tanzanian marathon runner. He was a very good runner, but he never won an Olympic gold medal. But he was running in the marathon at the 1968 Mexico City Olympics. And at the 19 kilometre mark of the 42 kilometre race, there was a bit of a jostle between competitors. Akwari fell over, dislocated his knee, I think cut his knee, badly hurt his shoulder. What did he do? He got up and kept half running, half walking the remaining 23 kilometres. He finished the race, last of all the competitors who actually finished, more than an hour after the winning time, after the medal ceremony, when most people had left the stadium, when I think the lights were off and they sort of had to sort of have a few lights left on while he came in. But there's this incredible footage of him sort of limping into the stadium and running around, (laughs) waddling around almost, to finish the race. And he was famously asked after the event, why did you keep running when you knew you weren't going to win? And he said, my country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. You know, the finish line was a motivation for him to keep going, even when it was difficult. So too, as Christians, in the finish line is a motivation for us to keep going with holiness. At which point you probably think that I finished with this illustration, but I haven't. I'm going to tell you more about acquiring because a number of years afterwards he started to become something of a national hero he was presented with the national hero medal of honor by his country for, i guess what he did for the country there's an organization called the john stephen aquari athletic foundation which supports tanzanian athletes footage of his finish has been shown time and time again around the world his final quote my country sent me here to finish not just start has been repeated in probably tens of thousands of contexts over the last few decades. When the Olympics were in Sydney, what did we do? We apparently invited him to the Olympics. Because that's an Australian thing to do, isn't it? With the underdog. And he even carried the Olympic flame through Tanzania in 2008. Basically, a whole lot of stuff happened to him after the finish line, which he probably never would have expected. Similarly, for Christians, when we're striving to live holy lives and we look forward to the finish line as an incentive, in fact the finish line isn't the finish line, it's the start line and it's what happens on the other side of that which is even better than we would expect, which we wouldn't even expect, which is an incentive to keep going as well. Finally and very briefly, did you notice verse 24? Paul says, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. This is in reference to the prayer So for Paul, this prayer for increased holiness in the Thessalonians is not a despairing prayer. It's not a wishful thinking prayer. It is, in fact, a confident prayer. God will do it. Now, it's interesting that throughout the letter, Paul has been urging the Thessalonians to to live a certain way. And here he's expressing the view that God's going to do it for them. And this, what this does is it picks up an idea which is right throughout the Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, that um, we work and strive as Christians, but it's God's strength which is working through us to achieve what God wants done. Let me give you another example. Colossians 1, Paul says, To this end I strenuously contend. Right? So he's strenuously contending, and it says, With all the energy... Christ so powerfully works in me; he's striving, but it's God power through him which is doing the work. Similarly, Christians strive to be holy, but it's God working through them who will make them holy. And God will make us holy in part in this life, and of course in full on Christ's return. Not a wishful thinking prayer; it's a confident prayer. So let me conclude. Paul's prayers that we've been looking at over these past few weeks are a wonderful model of how we might pray for others and how we might pray for ourselves. And the prayer which is highlighted today, which actually summarises a lot of the book, but which we summarise by saying thoroughly holy, is a prayer that Christians, others and ourselves, would be thoroughly holy. But as I've pointed out, it's sort of a dangerous prayer to pray because You know It will put us through difficulties as God uses things to refine us to make us more like his son, but it's the prayer we want to pray because as we become holier and as others become holier, God's purposes will be so much better worked out in this world. A great prayer, but a dangerous prayer. May God sanctify you through and through, or may God make you thoroughly holy, godly, more like Jesus. Let's make that a prayer we want to pray for ourselves and others and that we do pray for ourselves and others. And I'm going to pray it now. And if you agree with it, you can quietly uh, say amen in your own hearts. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the examples of prayer we see in Scripture. And uh, today, as we finish this series, we're reminded of the value of praying that others and ourselves would become increasingly and thoroughly holy, sanctified through and through. Lord, we pray that for others near and dear to us and others at this church and ourselves, but I guess with the sober realisation that that might mean um, difficulties or challenges at various points of our lives. Lord, help us to persist in pursuing holiness and godliness because we know that's best for others, ourselves, and particularly that's the sort of life which brings glory to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.